I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics. At least, in this mega-series that I'm supposed to be going through right now, I'm supposed to talk about comics. Basically, some stuff went on... At this point, it was actually a couple of months ago, but what I'm supposed to be talking about is actually Image Comics, this uh, mega-series I launched called It's All About Image, the substance of which was basically supposed to be all about a variety of different Image Comics from the 1990s, right? That was the plan. But the three episodes that I was unable to record I guess maybe the maybe the best way to say it is that those episodes were to they were supposed to include certain uh, guests and unfortunately for me I wasn't able to actually schedule time to get those guests involved and record with them and and all of that and so as a result I kind of found myself in a position where I could either record without them Or I could just say, you know what, fuck it. Sometimes things don't play out the way that we want them to. And just talk about other stuff for these remaining three episodes. And just let the chips fall where they may after that. And then save those episodes that those guests were supposed to be on. Just save those episodes for some other time. The fact that I'm not talking about Image Comics and haven't been lately should just about tell you what decision I ultimately made. So, there you go. As it goes for today, though, obviously that left a little bit of a hole in in my schedule, and so I kind of had to figure out what is it that I'm going to talk about, you know? And a, a kind of popular subject, something that I wasn't expecting people to enjoy as much as they apparently have, a kind of popular subject, at least for me, has been The Shadow, and specifically The Shadow Strikes, which, for those of you who don't know, that is my favorite Shadow comic book of all time, right? The Shadow has been in other comics throughout his publication history, and I'm not really taking anything away from those, except for that Howard Shaken, Kyle Baker's stuff, and, you know, those comics can pretty much fuck off and die in a fire, but for the most part, I'm not really taking uh, anything away from other Shadow comics that have been published at other times. 
I'm just saying that for me, what's definitive is the Shadow Strikes uh, title from uh, DC Comics in the late 80s and early 90s. For me, that's what the Shadow is supposed to be all about. And so, as far as I'm concerned, that's what's definitive. So, I would have thought that mine was probably going to be the minority opinion on all that, but if download numbers are anything to go by, and I'm kind of of the opinion that there's some kind of democratic truth to be had, at least on some level, whenever you check out your download numbers, but if download numbers are anything to go by, then I think it would be safe to say that a lot of you people out there seem to enjoy listening to me talk about the Shadow Strikes. So, like I say, that was completely unexpected. I thought that this was going to be one of those things where you guys kind of indulge me, but it wasn't going to be something that you guys are necessarily into all on your own. Such is life, I suppose. So, anyway, to get down to business, though, uh, today's issue is going to be The Shadow Strikes number three. And for those of you who are, I suppose, interested in in knowing, I've talked about uh, previous, uh, like I said, I've talked uh, previously about the the, uh, Shadow Strikes. In first, The the Shadow Strikes number one, that was episode uh, number uh, 123. And then I talked about The Shadow Strikes number two. This was uh, back in episode... Uh, number 171. So for those of you who are interested, that's when I talked about previous issues of The Shadow Strikes. But as it goes for today, which is to say episode number 180, I'm going to be talking about The Shadow Strikes number three. Cover date is November of 1989. On sale date is October the 3rd of 1989. Cover price is a buck seventy-five. <laughs> Weren't those the days? Title is Ghosts. Writer is Gerard Jones. Artist is Ed, or penciler. Well, no, I guess generally artist is probably the way to go. Artist is Eduardo Barreto. Letterer is David Cody Wise. Colorist is Anthony Tallon. And editor is Brian Augustin. Story synopsis is as follows. The issue kicks off with the shadow hunting Rasputin. First, he stops off at a, at a gypsy palm reader's shop. Then he visits a Russian-owned restaurant. And then he swings by a Russian uh, junk dealer's lot. Each time, he comes up empty-handed. Elsewhere, Commissioner Weston and Inspector Cardona talk about the murders at the Cobalt Club. The short version is Commissioner Weston wants to keep the murders at the Cobalt Club out of the news headlines as much as possible, which... Won't be very easy to do now that they've become newspaper headlines. So, hmm. Weston tries to console himself with the assurance that nobody's going to pay any attention to those headlines. So Cardona bribes a newspaper kid on the street to shout the headlines even louder. Meanwhile, Margot Lane wakes up in her hotel room to discover Harry Vincent has been taking care of her all night and all morning. Now that she's awake, though... Harry excuses himself, buys a shitload of flowers for his girlfriend to make up, uh, make it up to her for running out on her the way he did, and before he even knows what's going on, he gets ambushed by a thug inside of her apartment. He turns the tables on the thug just in time for some kind of gypsy-looking chick to barge into the room, holding a knife at Harry's girlfriend's throat. Ever the vapid airhead, Harry's girlfriend muses aloud that she didn't know that Harry was friends with Italians. As all that's going on, Zara pays a visit to Rasputin. She talks shit for a little while and then threatens to withhold Rasputin's elixir from him. He goes weak at the knees just hearing that and reaffirms that he serves only Zara, so she mixes his elixir for him and he gets a strength back. Across town, Inspector Cardona takes a phone call where he discovers that William Ort is also receiving death threats. He muses out loud over all these wacky murders to Fritz the janitor, who is actually the shadow in disguise. Elsewhere, coming up, dim- uh, coming up empty in his search for Rasputin, Lamont Cranston decides to throw a party at the Cobalt Club, 
hoping that he can draw Anastasia out. This succeeds, but it also results in the murder and the decapitation of Zherkov. Margot overhears Anastasia, talks shit to Vasilievich, and recognizes her as... Zara, Rasputin's partner. Meanwhile, Vasilievich is understandably freaked the hell out over all this, so he stops off at the Soviet consulate, and there the shadow gets the drop on him, saying that they've got a lot to talk about. To be concluded. So, what did I think? Well, from the outset, you know, I gotta gotta say, guys, that the cover for The Shadow Strikes number one is a really fucking awesome cover. I dig that cover from the first issue of The Shadow Strikes, right? The second issue of The Shadow Strikes, basically, that is to say, The Shadow Strikes number two, that also is a really cool cover. Perhaps not as cool as The Shadow Strikes number one, but still quite cool, right? The cover for The Shadow Strikes number three, it's basically a picture of that tarot reader that the shadow drops in on early on in the early on in this issue. And I don't know. I mean it's just you you see a little bit of the shadow and the reflection on her crystal ball, but it's just overall this is a I guess in terms of subject matter. This is just sort of a weak sauce type of cover, you know? I mean, it's done competently. I don't want to give the impression that it's not. It is a very well done and competent cover. But in terms of, like, what is this comic book actually about? Doesn't really tell you anything, you know? And anyway, I can't just let it go. And now that I've said my piece, I can finally, I think, move on. So anyway, getting into the... Getting into the the actual issue here on page one, basically what we see is the beginning of a sequence where the shadow is basically chasing Rasputin all over town, trying to find whatever information he possibly can. And this is actually kind of a neat little sequence because it does show just a little bit of how deep the knowledge of the shadow actually really goes, just how extensive his, I guess, awareness of... New York really is that he that he even knows that he can go to uh, this tarot reader, this palm reader, whoever this chick is, knowing that she's a gypsy and can get some kind of information from her, or at the very least, she's gonna know something, right? So basically, you know, he he barges in there and asks about uh, Rasputin, and while he's at it, also Madame Zara. And this gypsy chick basically responds, Zara is no longer one of us. She was never true Romani. I can ask others, she offers. And then it basically, the shadow's answer to that is, basically what this gypsy chick needs to do is make it clear to Rasputin that he's being hunted. And when when the gypsy chick asks who is hunting Rasputin, meaning who the hell are you, Mister Forty Five Caliber, he basically uh, tells her to look at uh, the cards, and the only card that's facing upright is the card of justice, which I kind of like. So anyway, it's just it's a neat little sequence, and like I say, I mean one of the tropes of the shadow is the shadow knows. And the shadow evidently knows that he can go to this particular uh, uh, tarot reader. And he's not going to necessarily have a direct line back to Rasputin. But she's nevertheless in a position to know things. She's in a position to make contact with Rasputin. So on and so forth. So even though she's not necessarily the inside track on the shadow getting his man, she's not a bad place to start. Anyway, moving on to page two, it's sort of a variation on that, somewhat with uh, diminishing returns, where the violin player at the Cafe Odessa restaurant clearly 
is Russian and clearly is going to have at least the possibility of knowing something about goings on with Rasputin, where he is, what he's doing, and all of that. And so the shadow has absolutely no hesitation whatsoever in putting a gun to this guy's head in order to make sure that he gets his answers. And again, it's there's a certain kind of ruthlessness that the shadow has because, guys, I have to believe that given the provocation, the shadow would blow this guy's head off and not lose a bit of sleep over it, you know? That's not to say he went into the bathroom specifically to kill this guy. But if that's where circumstances end up going, well, the shadow's at, he, he's at peace with that. And I just think this is, it's one of those sequences that just, it says a lot about the character without really giving anything away. Does that make sense? So anyway, we get the final of these uh, of these little chase sequences where the shadow drops in on this uh, Russian junk dealer and basically he pulls out both of these 45s and he kind of has a little, he talks a little bit of shit, right? The, the uh, junk dealer basically pulls out a knife and says, I can use this. And so the shadow's reply to that is pretty, pretty succinct. I am happy for you. I can use these. And then he pulls out his twin 45s, which is just about all the inspiration the junk dealer needs to drop his knife and finally start answering these questions about Rasputin. He basically says, we wash our hands of him. He kills people. If you want him, we're grateful. But what can I tell you? I'm a poor junk man. And basically, the shadow, his answer for the junk dealer is the same as it's been for everybody else. Dude, you need to let Rasputin know that I'm coming for him. And he's being hunted. And the junk dealer's basic response to that is, well, who are you? And here again, we get the shadow kind of talking in riddles a little bit. But he's also making it very clear he's pretty much the gold standard of not to be fucked with. Because what he says is... By the man who bested him before. His master. The man with the stone. And I don't know this to be true, but I'm guessing that's just about the time the Russian junk dealer guy probably shat his pants. So, who can say? Getting into... Page five, though, we kind of get a little bit of a flavor of the history of and whatnot of what's going on, I guess, in the real world, because this conversation that Cardona has with Weston touches on a little bit of real world uh, political intrigue, I suppose, right? I mean, yeah, there's the Cobalt Club, which is obviously fictional, but... Weston makes the comment to Cardona. He says, I resent the sarcasm, Inspector. Just because one of your people is in the mayor's office now. And then he, from there, the conversation gets a little windy. But it again touches on real-world political happenings and the mayor of New York at that time and the fact that this is... Well, suffice it to say, things have really changed in, in New York City. And... It's not exactly a, a a silver spoon elitist type that's in the mayor's office at that moment, you know? And Cardona even goes on to say, the Times has left a story on the obituary page. Mr. Hur's people, of course, are playing up Moncrief's New Deal involvement and just on and on. And again, this relates back to real-world goings-on and political events in the 1930s. And this is one of those things that I think it can. it's easy for people to lose track of whenever they read sort of period pieces like this. The fact that, you know, there were people who were living their lives, running their businesses, running their newspapers, uh, running their, I don't know, automobile manufacturing companies, so on and so forth, right? I mean, everything that's going on with the shadow, this shit is not happening in a vacuum. It, it's happening in the context of a semi-real world here, you know? And I don't know. I just, it's one of those things that gives, 
I would say The Shadow Strikes as a as a title, it gives it a lot of uh, texture to it, you know? Uh, there's a... I don't know. There's this air of... I don't want to say reality, but there's a... a framework, I guess. There's a foundation for all of these stories to unfold and for the for the shadow to do his thing. And this is an issue that I've, I, I think I've actually me- mentioned a couple of times in my previous shadow episodes, but we're going to be coming back to this in a little bit more detail later on in this issue. But I just want to raise awareness about it with you guys right now, that the way that, or at least I think a good way to read The Shadow Strikes as a title is basically the shadow interacting with real world history. Does that make sense? You know, like I say, this isn't happening in a vacuum. These real world events are happening around the shadow. The shadow is reacting to them. And when the shadow does something, the real world is reacting to him. So keep that in mind as we make our way through this issue here. The next little item of business, though, is this is sort of a sitcom-ish type of moment where Commissioner Weston basically says, well, I'm sure we can count on this whole matter, and he's talking here about the Cobalt Club murders, I'm sure we can count on this whole matter passing virtually, and he gets cut off by the newsboy on the street basically shouting at the top of his lungs, Headless Horror Found in Millionaire Sanctum! And that... Needless to say, it's not really what Commissioner Weston wants the common rabble on the street to hear. He even says aloud, well, no one of consequence reads those tabloids anyway. Which is just about Cardona's cue to offer a bribe to the newsboy to maybe shout all of these headlines a little bit louder. And that actually takes us over to page six. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that the kind of class warfare BS that I could kind of picture really was going on in New York at that time, you know? We're talking about the 1930s, and I think it would be safe to say that certainly in New York, there was a lot of hostility on the part of the have-nots at the haves, you know? And if there is any chance that somebody like Cardona could piss in their cornflakes a little bit. Yeah, I think he'd do it. And as much as anything, he'd do it just for the troll of it. But, you know, he's scoring points for his team, and I suppose that's not to be underestimated. So, anyway. Elsewhere, on page six, we see the Shadow basically planning. He's making phone calls, and he's basically planning Lamont Cranston's party. And what becomes pretty apparent is that he's doing this basically he's he's assembling a list of suspects and by that i mean people that might that may be able to lead him back to rasputin but as much as anything he's trying to reconnect with anastasia she's not mentioned by name but that is definitely what's what's on his mind and from there getting into page seven we cut to this is sort of a dream that Margot Lane is having. She's remembering and dreaming about her first meeting with Lamont Cranston. And you get the idea that she was, at least in her old life, a little bit of a shark. Does that make sense? Maybe a little bit of, I don't know if I want to say a gold digger, but maybe a little bit of a man-eater. And... She finds a way, she pretty much recognizes Lamont Cranston, perhaps not as Lamont Cranston, but she does recognize him as somebody who's got a shitload of money. And so she basically arranges a sort of, well, today I think what we'd call it is probably, like in Hollywood terms, we'd probably call it a meat cute, where she lets the wind blow her hat off. It lands on Lamont's uh, shoulder. She wanders over, and that's her way of breaking the ice with them so that they can become acquainted with one another and kind of... She tries making small talk with him a little bit, but I don't know. Is Lamont Cranston really the kind of guy that you want to make small talk with? Well, I guess 
I guess she didn't know that at the time. So anyway, the kind of neat thing, though, is that here on pages seven and eight, what we see on these dream panels or these flashback panels or whatever you want to call them, instead of having a solid uh, line outlining them, they have this sort of dashed line, you know, so dash, 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 dash. And it it's a helpful, I guess, visual device letting you know that this isn't happening in the modern day or for that matter, really even happening in the real world. This is a dream that Margot's having. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I've seen more effective ways of, of doing this type of thing, but this actually works really well, I think. And so I'm getting a drink of water here because my throat is already getting a little bit dry. Just a sec. Ah, good stuff. Actually, you know what? Now that I'm kind of at a little bit of a stopping point here anyway, I'm going to take a couple drags off my vaporizer. All right. So anyway, um, I'm not trying to like criticize the art here or anything like that. I'm just saying that this is, while this is an effective way of, I guess, visually conveying the fact that this is a dream or lacking that a memory, I've still seen this type of thing done in other ways. And honestly, ways that I think are maybe a little bit more effective, but whatever, this is perfectly fine for, for what it is. So I go with it. Anyway, one of the things that comes out here is that we are is that we realize this is how Margot Lane and Lamont Cranston first met. And there's a moment where Margot gets a little bit passive aggressive with Lamont. Lamont says, "Then I'll leave you to your piping marimbas, Miss Lane. I have something that must be done." He turns and walks off and so Margot says, well, just be careful not to fall in, meaning fall into the ocean. Just be careful not to fall in. You might freeze the other fish. And then there's a caption that says, like the first time, the words stop him. Like the first time, he turns. But it's never again like the first time. And he looks over his shoulder and it's no longer Lamont Cranston. It's now the face of Rasputin. And... That is basically the segue to Margot waking up and screaming bloody murder here. And for those of you who don't remember, basically, at the end of the second issue, well, not at the end of the second issue, but during the second issue, it gets implied that basically Rasputin raped Margot. And understandably, that's a lot for her to have to live with and try to cope with and process. And so, yeah, there are going to be scars from that. So, of course, it's going to affect... I don't know. Dreams are a weird thing, so I'm going to leave that to the psychologist, I suppose. But the point is, I could see her having nightmares about about Rasputin. So, anyway, from there, getting into uh, page 9, we get this kind of uh, extended sort of talky scene where Harry and Margot, they basically talk to one another. And honestly, I think when I was doing my first read-through of The Shadow Strikes, and this was years and years ago, you understand, but when I was doing my first read-through of The Shadow Strikes, this was really the first time I kind of wondered about Harry and Margot. Or at least were wondered about Harry, because, you know, the way he kind of plays the nursemaid here a little bit, it kind of makes you think, you know, does he think of Margot as just a co-worker? Does he think of Margot as just a friend? Well, there are good reasons to question that based on his behavior 
here on page nine. So anyway, but as much as anything, this is basically a little a little bit of a chance to get some exposition out there, not least of which being as Harry's remark saying he, meaning the boss, the shadow, Lamont, he wants you, Margot, uh, healthy because he's throwing a party tonight. And when she asks why, Harry says, you think he'd explain? Part of the plan, that's all. But don't be surprised if you meet the daughter of the czar there. And it just just sort of carries on from there. Conversation gets a little windy. And the point of it is, you know, this is a really, in, in the span of just two pages, basically what Gerard Jones, or actually three pages, really, but in the span of just three pages, Gerard Jones has shown us how Margot Lane and Lamont Cranston first met one another, what their first conversation was like, the fact that Margot is suspicious of Rasputin and, let's face it, goings-on from the second issue. She's clearly haunted and tormented uh, by that, enough so that she's having nightmares about it. And then from there, we shift gears and come to find out that the Shadow is basically launching plans and putting things in, uh, into motion so that he can draw Anastasia and probably some of the other Russians out into the open, right? All of that shit gets conveyed in just, guys, three fucking pages. That's it, you know? And that is really economical writing, you know? I'm, I'm, guys, look, I'm a fan of Gerard Jones from way back. So, you know, seeing stuff like this, it's, it's one of those things that if you let it, it can go right by you. But to me, it's the sign of somebody who's really good at what they do, that they can cram all of this stuff into just three pages. And unless you're keeping track and counting toes, what subjects get covered and how brief an amount of time, you might actually miss it. And I wouldn't really hold it against you if you did. But anyway, it's interesting is what I'm saying. So anyway, really well done. So from there, as I was saying in the plot summary, Harry picks up a shitload of flowers, rushes back to his girlfriend's apartment, he gets jumped. And then we find out that these gypsy looking chicks actually have, oh, the gypsy chicks. I didn't even think about making that pun. Anyway, the gypsy chicks basically have, uh, they've uh, basically taken uh, Harry's girlfriend, well, prisoner, for lack of a better way. But I mean, whenever you've got a knife at somebody else's freaking throat, what do you call that, you know? So that's a hostage situation there, guy. So anyway, whatever might be happening with this stuff. So Anyway, needless to say, we'll be revisiting, not in this issue, obviously, but we are going to be revisiting that. And then from there, um, this is getting into uh, page 11. Zara drops in on Rasputin. And up to this point, I think the reader probably assumed that Rasputin is actually the big mastermind of this whole organization. The Cheviots are basically his lieutenants and... Perhaps Zara is just another one of his servants. That's not really the case here. As much as anything, I at least got the idea, just reading this for the first time, that actually this Eleanor and Lucille Cheviot, as much as anything, they're almost like they're sort of like Rasputin's captives. But in as much as they are Rasputin's captives, Rasputin nevertheless serves... Zara. And honestly, there are, looking back at it, there are hints and clues as to uh, Zara's uh, true identity. Things that, that she knows, you know, intel that she has access to, even jewelry that she wears. All of this really should have been a bigger giveaway. But again, to me, it's the sign of talent that somebody can hide clues like that in plain sight. And you might just miss it if you're not paying like really close attention. So again, kudos to you, Gerard Jones. So anyway, on most of page 11, what we see is 
Rasputin, he's basically talking shit to anybody who will listen about how, what a badass he, he is and how he's destined to rule over everything and everyone and he's the master of death, fucking blah, blah, blah. And then you start getting into page 12 and what you discover is you're not the master of anything. And then into page 13, you need this elixir. I, Zara, am the only one who can get it for you. So who do you serve, Rasputin? And she basically takes her belt off and makes him her monkey for just this one little page. And it's definitely enough to show you who's really in control of whom around here. So anyway, very well done. And that's the point. Very well done. So moving right along, this, this takes us in actually to page 14. I really love this page because it's one of the shadows more, I guess, famous disguises is Fritz, the janitor, right? And basically what Fritz, the janitor allows the shadow to do is wander around police headquarters, mostly undisturbed and for the most part, mostly ignored. And he can maybe make small talk with some of the cops and get some extra information on some case that he's working on and all of that without really calling too much attention to himself, you know? And number one, to me, it's just kind of funny, this visual image of the shadow, more or less, mopping floors, when, let's face it, he spends quite a bit of his time pretending to be this kind of spoiled, pampered aristocrat. I just like the sort of reversal of that, that he will pretend to be anything, because he's not any one thing. He is the shadow. And all of these different disguises and stuff that he wears. I mean, look, Lamont Cranston is every bit as much a disguise as Fritz the janitor. You know, one is not more or less than the other. And I just, I like that. You know, I mean, again, without really telling you anything, it speaks a lot to character, you know? And what can I say? I mean, that really plays for me. But like I say, I mean, Fritz is one of the Shadow's more famous disguises. And... Anytime we see Fritz running around, I just like that, you know? It just plays for me. I don't know. Anyway, so elsewhere, and this brings us into uh, page 15, elsewhere at uh, the club, we see Lamont Cranston's party going. And, you know, this is one of those things that kind of speaks, I guess, to the upper crust of New York, that they're always ready for a party, even if it's on short notice. And... I just like that, you know, that Lamont Cranston can summon a party together just like that, you know, and it comes together that that easily, you know. And the other thing, though, is that this sort of reintroduces us to some of the side characters that are important specifically to this mystery that we're working our way through right now. But it also it again, it gives us the flavor of what exactly was going on in the 1930s, or I guess the early 1930s, in New York at this time, you know? Uh, right here on page 16, we basically see this uh, extended little bit here where basically it's it's William, uh, this is uh, William Ort. Wait, is it Ort or is it Oft? Pretty sure it's it's William Ort. Well, whatever the fucking guy's name is, um, William Ort, he's he's basically giving you his, I can't even call it political ideology, but I guess his industrial ideology. Basically, what he says is, a man shouldn't have secrets. Don't believe in them. Let man know what the world knows. These fellows want me to build an automobile factory in their country. Base, and he's referring to the Russians, right? Use Yankee know-how. That's it. Get them out of the spot that that all that government of theirs get them in. A lot of people say I shouldn't be helping the communists. That's Bosch. Communism's Bosch. Capitalism's Bosch. Industry. That's it. The work of a man's hands. 
That's what this depression's for, to give the world over to industry as the Lord meant it. Then, all these countries can be got rid of. Countries are bosh. Nothing government can do that an industrialist can't do better. He looks over at the Russians and he says, I have better spies than you. And you know what? I'm not sure if I'm prepared to believe that of some American industrialist as compared to, say, the entire fucking Soviet Union. But some two-star general, him specifically, from from the Soviet Union, yeah, you know, I maybe could believe that some well-to-do... <clears throat> top 1% upper-crust industrialist, some captain of industry. You know, he may actually have better intel, better spies. Um, I guess just a, a, an overall better intelligence apparatus than some, in effect, basically a diplomat, you know? Yeah, I could believe that. And, you know, the thing is, attitudes like this, I mean, I'm not saying that they were super common in the 1930s, but it wasn't really unusual to find people who thought, well, I guess industry really is the path to the future. I mean, the idea of having uh, governments and having presidents or kings or whoever... Look, I mean, that stuff worked great, but guys, it's not the fucking Dark Ages anymore. What we need now is commerce, you know? And there were people out there, again, it's not like everybody on the street felt this way, but it wasn't exactly uncommon to find somebody who thought, yeah, you know, industry is where it's at, you know, commerce, that's where it's at. What we need is basically a society that's organized not by government, but by industrialists, by presidents of companies, by CEOs, and all of this. And basically, I guess, uh, a society that's just that fucking geared to private enterprise, to business. And admittedly, I don't think it was as common in the 1930s as it probably had been prior to then. I mean, if you look at you know, goings on in the early 20th century, in fact, probably the late 19th century going on into the early 20th century. Yeah, I bet, you know, that kind of robber baron type of mentality probably was a lot more common back then and was probably starting to die out uh, by about the 1930s. But it does kind of speak to, I guess, the ideological differences that people had back then. I mean, I know it's, you know, it's not going to be breaking news to any of you who are listening to this, or at least any of you who are American. When I tell you that America, from a political standpoint, is a very deeply divided country from a political standpoint, right? A lot of people seem to have different, very different ideas. But, you know, what I find is that the ideas that are the differences that exist between between us these days... I mean, you know, people say so much about, you know, the culture war and, you know, the culture war is over and all this stuff. And... You know, guys, think about that for just a minute. What that is a tacit admission of. You know, it's like we seem to have very, or at least relatively similar ideas, at least as far as ideology and, you know, certain things, at least from an economic standpoint that the government ought to do. What we disagree about is basically issues of morality, right? And perhaps a little bit more accurately, what is moral? And the differences that exist between that, but between... I, I, the idea of moral as the right defines it versus the idea of moral as the left defines it and the conflict that creates. But in terms of, you know, policy, you know, the differences between the left and the right, they're not as vast as people want to want you guys to believe, you know, uh, economic policy. I mean, it seems like the right and the left basically on some level believe in kind of similar things. They're not as far apart as you might think. And it's really to do with a lot of just moral issues that is causing all the conflict. Now, compare that 
to the way things were in the 1930s when you had these these fucking these Nazi sympathizers that were renting out Madison Square Garden and basically ha- having these kind of strange sort of pep rallies in Nazi costumes, you know, for the Nazi government. You know, that was going on. And you also had uh, people who were not exactly openly collaborating with the Soviet Union, but basically figured, you know, the day's going to come when America goes full communist. And these people were relatively okay with that. And then you also get guys like Ort who thought that, you know what, it's the answer. It's not fascism. And it's not communism. It's for damn sure not democracy capital, or, or capitalism or anything like that. The, the, the real answer to our, to, to our problems, to, to the threats facing America, basically what it comes down to is business. You know, that's the answer. What we need to do is instead of arguing around the margins, trying to figure out what kind of government we need to have, we need to just, just fucking just throw away the idea of government entirely and be organized according to business, according to commerce and industry and things like that, according to profit. And it just kind of speaks to just how, I guess, varied and dynamic, you know, public opinion was and the amount of different ideas people could have back then that, you know, I mean, I don't care how far right somebody is. I don't think there are very many people in the world except maybe like a couple of anarcho-capitalists, you know, these kind of extreme libertarian types who think that the market is the answer to everything. I mean, look, it's one thing to say that, yeah, you know, the free fucking market actually works, guys. Maybe we should give that a try sometime. You know, I can see that being somebody's idea, but this idea that, you know, that we, the people, the common man, the citizen, the individual should belong to uh, the forces of enterprise to... Um, the conditions of the market that basically we we should all be subject to industry. There are very few people in the liber e- like even in the libertarian world. That's a pretty fucking weird attitude to have, you know. And there aren't very many people who have it. Whereas, not to beat this thing to death, but whereas back in the nineteen tens, the twenties, the thirties, that attitude was not entirely unheard of, you know. And of course, it's antithetical to everything that communism represents. And it kind of makes sense that that uh, Zhirkov kind of bristles against that because that's literally everything that the communist doctrine rejects. But I don't know. It, it, it makes for... I have to assume that would, that, that would have to make for some very interesting dinner parties among New York's upper crust. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall back then. But anyway... That pretty well leads into a little bit of a confrontation between Zhirkov and Vasilievich, where they pretty well have it out with each other. Vasilievich smacks Zhirkov right across the face, and Zhirkov says, okay, that's the last mistake you're ever going to make. That report, all of this stuff that I know about you, I'm filing that tomorrow. So... It's been nice knowing you, and that's on page 17. Elsewhere, this is on page 18, Lamont Cranston does end up reuniting with Anastasia. And what we get here is a little bit of backstory. It's not shown to us, but just through their exposition, we get a little bit of backstory on how exactly Cranston and Anastasia ever met one another and basically what happened with their, I guess, their history. And, you know, all around, this is, it's just very telling, you know, that they they met the way that they did, but... This was not, they weren't just, you know, ships in the night. They really did mean something to each other. And, you know, I think it's actually well worth asking how far exactly did this relationship go? Because it's kind of hard to estimate Lamont Cranston's age here. 
But you get the idea he's somewhere in his mid to upper 30s. And that means that... Well, let me think. Um, let's just... Just to kind of put a number on it. Let's say that this issue is taking place in 1931. Actually, shit. Just, no, for sake, for ease of math, 1930. So, World War One would have ended... When did it end? 1918, I guess? All right, so 1930 minus 12. Yeah, that sounds... So I guess 1980. So yeah, so I guess that would have been about 12 years. So 12 years before this. If you figure that Lamont Cranston is... Just to kind of just throw a number out there, he's 35. He would have been 23-ish about the time that he met Anastasia when she was 15 years old. That's fucked up. So, you know, you're kind of wondering, how far did it go then, you know? So, I don't know. And it, it's never actually outright said, you know, what they did or did not do with each other. Thank God. But Anastasia does kind of call him out on his bullshit a little bit. And she says, and a grown man can't feel such things for a girl of 15. You could sooner convince me that war really is a thing of the past. And this, again, kind of speaks to, I guess, some of the changes in society that were happening in the 1930s that it's kind of hard to write about now, I guess, in, in a fictional context. But, you know, you kind of got to figure... How shall I put it? The idea of a grown man dating a girl, of just to kind of pick a number, 15 years old, was that really so unheard of back then? I mean, I'm not saying that such a thing was to be, I don't know, encouraged, but how uncommon was that really, you know? And you kind of have to wonder about that, you know? I mean... My grandmother would tell stories of how classmates of hers, whenever she went to high school, were married, you know, and it just wasn't uncommon. I mean, it was a pretty typical thing, you know, and it just kind of makes you wonder. So anyway, what did or didn't happen between Lamont and Anastasia? Well, nothing's ever said outright, but you can interpret quite a lot based on their dialogue, and that's all I think I need to say about it. So anyway... Basically, guys, what I'm saying here is that this this entire just section of the story, these whole, I guess, three or four pages, just really well done, really well written. And we even get a little bit of a flashback on page 20 of Anastasia's family being murdered, and she luckily escapes. She basically just falls over and plays dead. And the reason that she's able to get to get away from it is one Bolshevik soldier, and this is all happening during the revolution, one Bolshevik soldier basically spared her life, dropped her off with a with a a, a another family in Russia, or actually out of Russia. It was a gypsy family and what comes out is that it was actually Alexander Vasilovich who spared her life. You know, he could have just as easily have shot her, but he spares her life. And so, very telling that, isn't it? So, from there, Margot discovers Zhirkov's uh, dead body in a bathroom upstairs, and one of the kind of strange things that comes out of this on page two is Vasilovich asks Anastasia, he says, is it over? And her answer to that is ask yourself. And Lamont Cranston watches her leave, gets intercepted by uh, Margot, who says that woman, her voice, that's her, Zara, Rasputin's partner. And so elsewhere, Vasilovich returns to uh, he, uh, he returns to uh, the uh, Soviet consulate. He basically opens this 
uh, cabinet with a bunch of severed heads in it, one of which now is Zhirkov, which clearly freaks Vasilovich out. And then we hear this voice, or rather we see a dialogue balloon for a uh, disembodied voice behind uh, Vasilovich. And it says, Good 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 evening, evening, Comrade Vasilovich. We need to talk. And that is pretty much the end of the issue. And I don't know. I mean, I just, I freaking love, love, love this, this entire title, but specifically this storyline, you know? And this is, at least in my estimation, this is a really good mission statement. These first four issues, the fourth of which obviously I haven't talked about yet, but these first four issues of The Shadow Strikes, these are a really effective mission statement of what The Shadow Strikes as a title is going to be all about, you know, and I guess the style that uh, Gerard Jones was was shooting for, and I guess the way that stories were going to be told here and where we're seeing we're reading these stories that are taking place in a world that's recognizably ours. The Shadow, during his conversation, I accidentally skipped this part, but during uh, Lamont's conversation with, with Anastasia, she suggests that she, that, that Lamont was actually the one who was behind that attempt on Rasputin's life where he was poisoned, shot, thrown into the river, and then buried he never actually denies being responsible for that you know um she she suggests that you know for a while there i thought you that you did that and he never actually denies it and so you know here again what we see is the shadow interacting with history with real life events and real life events interacting with him and i think that is such a clever and original way to do these stories and you know hats off to Gerard Jones for seeing the thousand dollar bill on the sidewalk and picking it up so anyway all around this story fucking great this issue is great uh, and I haven't really talked too much about the art but obviously guys if it sucked I would have said so by now it's great too guys these back issues can't cost that much check them out satisfaction guaranteed and so that, I think, is pretty much it for The Shadow Strikes this week. Now, as to next week, uh, basically what I've got planned, and we're going to have to see how well this is actually going to come together, but triple underline this, what I have planned is the very last entry in the big book report, at least for the time being. I'm calling this really the big book of leftovers, and we'll get more into that next week, but basically I've got a little bit of a gimmick for that episode and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it so 2016 what a year anyway happy new year everybody and I'll see you next week
Introducing the all-new line of Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Show off your more thoughtful side with these brain-teasing bumper stickers. Such classics as... Have you hugged your snot-nosed Ritalin junkie today? Honk frantically if you're a violent sociopath. I'm the proud parent of a blue-blooded legacy child with mediocre grades. If this van's a-rockin', I'm probably deflowering your teenager. My other car also compensates for an unattractive wife. Honk if you're trapped in a loveless marriage. All of these and hundreds more are available for a limited time only. Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Buy some. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link Donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.